0: If you would take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Last week, we began looking at the gifts and the work of the Holy Spirit. And we looked at the work of the Holy Spirit that is active now, supernaturally, in the life of the believer, and how the Holy Spirit works in regeneration, which is a supernatural act. And we, as we began to look at this, we looked at what gifts of the Holy Spirit would not, or the work of the Holy Spirit, that would not be controversial. And this evening, we begin to look at some of the gifts of the Spirit, and we are asking this question, which gifts continue, what gifts have ceased, have any ceased, or do they all continue? And so, when you look at this, one of the clearest or most controversial places in Scripture with this is 1 Corinthians. Really, chapter 12 through 14 is the crux of the debate. And so, let me read verses 1 uh, through 11, and then we'll discuss these. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, And to another, the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by one Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to to distinguish between Spirits. And to another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. This is the word of God. This is the word of God concerning the gifts of the Spirit. What is interesting is you begin in verse 1 where Paul states, I do not want you to be uninformed, which means he's addressing the issue of spiritual gifts in a place where they Are abused, and where there is misinformation about them, he speaks of their pagan background, and so they're bringing remnants of what they had believed before they regenerate into their Christian walk. What is interesting is you can go into various different uh, groups of people, particularly in third world countries, and you will see and I'm giving you the scare quotes, manifestations of something taking place, which is bizarre and not normal. Uh, Whether it is the speaking in gibberish that's not unique to Pentecostal charismatics, Uh, you will see that in many third world countries. Our question is, is that a work of the Spirit of God today? And what we oftentimes see today as some of those gifts is that what Paul was referring to. That's what we want to look at. What gifts continue? What gifts have, have ceased? And one of the things we, we want to be careful to distinguish between is the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is active, and we should desire the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And when we don't see the fruit of the Spirit, it would be odd to be asking for the gifts of the Spirit, since it's the will of God for us to be Holy. No one argues, though, whether the Holy Spirit still produces in the life of the believer and the church. The debate looms over these apostolic gifts, or these what's charismata, charismatic gifts. The New Testament provides several lists of gifts. You have, in Ephesians, a list that includes even offices that are available in the church, We have 1 Corinthians, (coughs) where we have these various gifts mentioned. We have the book of Romans, which mentions gifts, and we have 1 Peter in gifts as well. Now, I don't think that the gifts that are mentioned are meant to be exhaustive, and that's one of the things I want to point out, and of the nine gifts that are listed here, we want to distinguish between each of the gifts that are listed as best as we can, I have to say that there's a bit of mystery behind it in this chapter. But generally speaking, when you think of gifts, think of it into two different categories. And, and 1 Peter, I think, describes this well. In 1 Peter chapter 4, we read this in verse 10 as in so first peter 4:10 as each has received a gift use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ when you look at those two gifts, you see gifts that are revelatory or speaking. I don't think First Peter is talking about new revelation, by the way. Just speaking the Word of God and that of service. And I think you can categorize just very generally all the gifts that are mentioned in Scripture into one of those two categories of some sort of speaking type of gift or some sort of service gift now when we look at what the purpose of the gifts are chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians verse 7 tells us what they're for to each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good so the gifts of the spirit that are that are mentioned here are not for my own personal edification but primarily their primary function is for the common good and that would make sense if God has given someone the ability to preach and they're gifted in the ability of preaching it would not make sense that they edify themselves through preaching to a mirror. If someone has the gift of mercy it would not make sense for them to exercise that to themselves but rather to others. So it's it's not a difficult concept to understand the reason why people are gifted is for the purpose of helping Others. Now, as you begin to look at these gifts, we have to ask, which of these are still in use? Obviously, acts of mercy is still in use. Proclaiming God's word is still in use. What becomes controversial and what we want to concern ourselves with are these miracles, revelation, prophecy, healing, and tongues and what these are. And so this evening, we're just going to start working our way through these, and we'll, we'll see how far we, we get. But if I want to start with verse 10, to another working of miracles. Working of miracles. And to begin with, when you think of what a miracle is... A lot of what we say today, in um, just our common use of the word miracle, is not a miracle. And I'm speaking to us as Christians that I'm assuming most of us in this room are cessationist. Even how we might use the word "that was a miracle" is oftentimes misused, and we have to we have to be aware of that. A miracle. Primarily is a supernatural act accomplished by a force outside of nature that intrudes into the natural environment and acts in such a way that nature could not produce itself. If you will read the philosophers during the Enlightenment period, this is exactly how they would have defined a miracle. Uh, Those that would have been skeptics of the word of God. They would have said it's something outside of nature that cannot be reproduced, um, and it cannot be take place in some sort of natural way. A miracle is something that goes against nature. And I think that that's an accurate way of looking at a, what a miracle is. Uh, Dr. Beakey, in his systematic theology, says a miracle is an extraordinary, observable event. So something observable, according to God's sovereign will. Now, now Beaky's coming at this obviously from a biblical worldview, from a Christian worldview, that whatever takes place that would be constituted as a miracle is something that is according to God's will. This is meaning this is something God in eternity has planned to bring out in human history. That he says that will evoke. His own uh, awe at his powerful presence. So in other words, when there's the presence of a true miracle, according to God's sovereign will, what what Dr. Beeky is saying is that this will create awe in those that observe it. Okay, Because, he says, it confirms and fulfills his word of salvation and judgment. So when we look at these, these two different definitions, they're not, they're not in um, contradiction of one another, but one would be a very secular way of looking at it. It's something outside of nature, supernatural, can't be reproduced in nature. Dr. Beakey is saying the same thing, but it's something observable according to God's uh, sovereign will that God himself works, and it's to create awe in his presence. So, childbirth... Is spectacular and fantastic, but it's not a miracle. It's actually to be expected and is repeated in nature every hour, every day, since the beginning of man. And so when we say that, that birth is a miracle, we're actually applying to birth something that's that's not true of it. Now it is spectacular and it is fantastic. And it is a gift of God, but it's technically not a miracle. What would be a miracle is the virgin birth. What would be a miracle is what we looked at this morning with the life of Sarah and her being able to conceive at her age, and uh, that was a, a miracle. And so when we, when we use the phrase, that's a miracle, we have to be careful of how we use that. There's also something else that we have to know about miracles. They were used in Scripture to confirm the messenger. Uh, they didn't save anyone, but they confirmed the message. I think that that's important because a lot of times... What people are asking for, and as they asked during Jesus' time, is that there would be some sort of miracle, and if they saw some sort of miracle, that they would believe, right? You, you hear that type of rationalization. But it was really to confirm the messenger. In fact, this is what Jesus himself is, is, teaches us in, in John chapter 2. We read in verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, notice what that says. They believed in his name. But the next phrase is crucial. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now, here's the progression. You see, Jesus has performed the miracle at the wedding of Cana, turning water into wine. It was by divine fiat. Uh, God brings about water that's normal water and turns it into wine. The fermentation process, all of that that takes place in an instant becomes wine. Then they start to see the signs that Jesus was doing, and it causes a stir. Chapter 3 says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Why do they know that? Why do they know? Well, Nicodemus tells us, For no one can do these signs. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus recognizes the nature of the signs. Um, the, the ruler of the Jews, the Pharisees, would have recognized the nature of the signs. Is that the nature of the signs was for the purpose of confirmation of the messenger? It was to confirm the messenger. We see elsewhere some of these same things in John chapter uh, 11, verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so what they're saying is if people keep looking at these, these miracles and these signs that Jesus will do, it will confirm his message, and through that message they will believe in him and we'll be carried away. We can't allow him to continue doing these. And so, they were revealing who Christ was. They were revealing that his word was true, and his word was from God. Jesus also says in John chapter 5, verse 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So, just as a side note, the idea of miracles, signs, works, are oftentimes synonymously used. So when Jesus is saying this, he's using a general reference to all that he had been doing. He said, those are to bear witness that I'm from the Father. They were to reveal him. And so we see this connection for salvation in the idea of miracles, that it confirms the word, it points to Christ, and results in salvation. Not the miracle, but they confirm the message so that people might believe in the message. So when you look at the idea of miracles, were miracles part of Scripture? Certainly they were part of Scripture, and they were for the purpose, as Jesus says, of confirming the message that he brought about. And that's also why you see miracles surrounding the apostles in distinct stages in the book of Acts. With different people groups, you see different things taking place that are outside the norm. And after it has reached a certain people group in the book of Acts, it, it seems to go away. And it was so for the purpose of confirming the message of the messenger. There's, there's a second thing about miracles in the scripture. When we, when we think about the Bible, and oftentimes people have an objection to the Bible because they say, well, you know, there's all of these miracles all over the scriptures. Like, really? Where are all those miracles all across Scripture? You see miracles in Scripture, certainly. But it's not that if if you're reading the Scriptures, you're just reading miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. It's not that case at all. In fact, you see three stages of miracles that are very distinct in Scripture. And I think we have to see this. You have the Exodus event, where there are miracles that take place. Surrounding Moses? Now, did that need to happen to confirm the message of the messenger? Certainly. He was asking a people to rebel against a a more powerful army than them and to trust in the word of the Lord. You also see the time of Elijah and Elisha, where under Elijah there's seven. Elisha is given a double portion, and there's 14 that take place under him. And so, in those distinct stages, those two distinct stages in the Old Testament, you certainly see miracles. Now, you see something like a supernatural act where there's the, uh, with Joshua, the sun stands still. You also see battles where people are sent into frenzy. But in terms of axe heads floating and people being raised from the dead, um, there's really only those two stages at the time of Moses and the time of Elijah and Elisha, which were distinct. Periods of time in Israel's history. The third and final stage is during the time and life of Jesus and the apostles, which is, is a crucial period of time because this is now the establishment of the new people, covenant people of God, and the confirmation of the word of God that would be canonized. Each phase was temporary the time of moses ceased it was temporary you come in then to the time of elijah and elisha it was temporary it ceased you come into the time of christ and the apostles i believe it ceased and because there's there's nothing left on the timetable except the return of christ it makes no sense to say well now We're waiting for this second second, um, advent of gifts to come back again since we're waiting for Christ to return. We don't have apostles. We don't need a new word to be brought about because we have the scriptures that is complete in and of itself. But what about today? Do miracles still happen? I, I think that that's the wrong question. And it's, it's one that I cannot answer. I think the better question is, do people still have the gift of miracles? Because that's what this text is dealing with. Um, as I, I said last week, regeneration, that is being born again, being born from above, is a supernatural act of the Spirit. If we want to classify that as a miracle, I'm okay with that as long as we understand what we're talking about. But do people have this gift of miracles? One thing is, is if we make every extraordinary thing that happens a miracle, what does that do to true miracles? It diminishes what we see in the scriptures as being really not that special, not that important. And it diminishes the work that we have seen and then it becomes, if we say everything is a miracle that's extraordinary, that becomes the expected outcome of every situation. So, what you see here in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 12, to another, the working of miracles. Now, it's literally the workings of powers. That's, that's a very literal translation of it. The workings of power Uh, which you could say is a a display of something that's supernatural. In the history of interpretation, there's been two various uh, groups that you could fall into. Calvin said that this was that of fighting against devils and hypocrites. And so he he saw it in in a very ordinary sense that you could see it. Others, many others actually, and um, in most modern commentators, see it as actually that of being able to, the power to raise the dead and extraordinary supernatural things. Kind of like what we see in the working of miracles in the life of Jesus. So you, you have those, those two different camps. One of the things that we have to recognize about this idea of working of miracles is that we actually don't see the working of supernatural events. Now, because we don't see it doesn't determine whether it's still present or not, does it? The Word of God and whether it's still present is what determines whether the working of miracles and people have the gift of miracles or not. Now, what was the purpose of miracles? It was to confirm the messenger. Do we have a complete canon of Scripture now? Absolutely. There's no longer a need to say, here's a new revelation from God, and to prove that this is from God, I'm going to make this axe head float. Because that was the purpose of the miracles. The other thing is this, is that we see, foundationally, it's complete. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says this, that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Are there new apostles? What's the the qualification of an apostle? That they had seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you think about this idea built on a foundation, do you build a foundation on top of a foundation? No, a foundation is one that is already built. So there, there is no need for this. Now, a lot of people will point over to John chapter 14 and say, hold on, hold on. Jesus actually says... Jesus says there's going to be a continuation of these things. In John chapter 14 and verse 12, we read this Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, we have to understand. A couple of things. Jesus is speaking to the disciples when he gives this instruction, and he tells the disciples, you're going to do greater works than I am going to do. You have to ask a question. Did any of the disciples do anything greater than what the Lord Jesus Christ did? The answer is no, if we're thinking in terms of the miraculous. Now, there's there's some uh, uh, miraculous things that take place in the book of Acts, where people are healed by walking in the shadow of the apostles. Uh, You see that uh, Peter raises Dorcas from the dead. You see some extraordinary things, but did they do greater works in terms of the miraculous than Jesus? And the answer is no, they did not. So did, was Jesus mistaken when he was said that you will do something greater? Well, the greater work that they did was actually the preaching of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, and, and this, is, this is not blasphemy, Paul was more effective in the preaching of the gospel than Jesus was. Jesus' ministry was three years The Apostle Paul's was many years of going to many different lands, proclaiming the gospel to many different people groups, empowered by the Spirit, seeing churches planted. Uh, So when you think of the work of the gospel, just on the day of Pentecost alone, there was a greater work than that of what Jesus experienced himself. And that is what Jesus is referring to There is not the working of miracles that will just continue on and on, but it's actually the spread of the gospel. I, and I, I'm, not a, uh, I, I'm not a fan of Billy Graham. But let me just, I'm not knocking him, by the way, either. Um, but you think of the mass crowds that heard the gospel proclamation under him. The Apostle Paul could have never imagined that, having amplification to reach 60,000 people or more at one time with the gospel. That's incredible. That's a greater work that Jesus never spoke to 60,000 people at one time. And so when we think of these greater works, yeah, it's the greater works of reaching the, uh, the peoples and the nations with the, with the gospel to quote Joel Beakey one more time, he says this is, when we think of these ideas of of miracles, he says only the miraculous gifts have ceased. Not miracles themselves. But the idea of the gifting of it, Dr. Beakey says has ceased. This brings us to one that is particularly, I think, important for us to think about, and that is the gift of healing. Again, Paul, this is in verse 9. And and we started with miracles because in many ways, even though it's not first in the list, it serves as the overarching. He says, healing by the one spirit to another gifts of healing. Healing. This is speaking of someone that is given this gift of healing. Now, the first thing, I believe healing takes place today. Anytime someone is healed, it is according to a sovereign work of God. If you have a headache, and you take a Tylenol for that headache, and your headache goes away, that is according to the sovereign working of the Lord. The Lord uses means. And I believe that... The means of healing, and I think this is very careful. I, I mean, I mean, we have to be very um, adamant about this. Healing oftentimes comes through the prayers of the faithful. So, should we pray for people to be healed? Absolutely. I, I, I believe that we, and the Scripture calls us to pray for the sick. Paul speaks of praying for the sick. And so should we pray that the Lord would heal the sick? Yes. And does the Lord still heal the sick? Yes. Again, no one gets over a splinter apart from the sovereign work of God. Uh, but what does the Bible teach us about healing? And I actually found this in in a book by MacArthur that, that he has two books on the gifts. One of them is, is pretty good. One of them is okay. And um, the one on healing is actually the, the best chapter in in it. Um. And he gives these these list of things that the Bible teaches us about healing. First, he says that this, is Jesus healed with a word or by touch? Uh, He gives this centurion. um, He he mentions those who touched him that had chronic bleeding. So with the centurion, he says, go, your, your child will be healed. The apostles also healed in the same way. So with a word or touch, Peter healed Aeneas by word and Paul on the island of Malta by touch. And so we see the same manner in which they healed was the same. So Jesus could say, go, your your child is healed and the child would be healed. The apostles did the same. Jesus healed instantly and the apostles healed instantly. Um, just as I think about it, the, the, the blind man that has to go to the pool and wash is an instance where you see that there's a delay, but it's, Jesus was it was upon that act of going there that he would be healed. And so it's instant whenever they heal. And that's the, that's the interesting thing, is that sometimes faith healers will, will claim a delay or a progression of getting better. That's not the example we have in Scripture. When Jesus healed, it was instantly. The other thing is Jesus healed totally. The apostles also healed totally. There was no recuperation time. So when the lame man is given regenerative power to his legs, he didn't have to regain his strength and rework it and go through physical therapy of some sort, but he was instantly healed and able to jump and run and have his legs working as if they had always been working. So you see in that instant with no recuperation that's required a regeneration. That's the miraculous part about it is that one that had healed le- or lame legs that could not use their legs, it's healed instantly. Um, I had, a, I had a, a friend that had cerebral palsy, and he was confined to a wheelchair. He went through hours and hours of surgery, breaking his legs and resetting them and breaking them and resetting them so he could have minimal amount of walking. Even after that arduous, very long and painful and serious surgery, it was months and months and months before his, his body and legs were able to kind of walk. So that was going through a uh, medical procedure. When Jesus heals someone, their, their legs are uh, automatically brought. Jesus also was able to heal everybody in Luke chapter 4, verse 40, and it's one of the few places where you see this in, in, in Luke, or Luke chapter 4, verse 40. Uh, we read this. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid hands on every one of them and healed them. So, you know, just, just think of the Benny Hen crusade where there's a where there's a group of people there that they're told if you have faith you'll be healed and they they walk away not healed Jesus healed everyone was able to heal everyone that came to him also in acts chapter 5 in verse 16 it says, the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they, they were all healed. The apostles exhibited that same exact thing that Jesus had. Um, Jesus healed organic disease. Again, this is from MacArthur. I think this is really helpful. Crippled, uh, those that were withered, those that were blind. He doesn't heal of, of back pain. He doesn't heal of headaches. That doesn't mean that he couldn't. It, it just simply says he deals with things that are organic disease. And the same thing with the apostles. And then the sixth thing is this, is Jesus raised the dead. Jesus raised Lazarus, and Peter raised Dorcas. You, know, you also see Elijah and Elisha both uh, raising the dead of as well. Now, these are the characteristics of the gift of healing. This is how the New Testament, and I, I think that we can see correlation of it also in the Old Testament, this is how the Old Testament describes the gift of healing, is with those categories there. So, if the gift of healing was still present, would we not think it would manifest itself in the same manner? But but what we see claimed as the gift of healing is actually quite different than what the New Testament practices. In the New Testament, even as you're reading the New Testament, it seems as if the the gift of healing was actually beginning to wane um, after the time of Pentecost. In fact, the book of James, which was most likely the first book of the New Testament written, you see this call for prayer of healing. James says in James 5.14, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord Jesus. And the prayer of of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. Now, it's interesting what's taking place here. James was the pastor of the Church of Jerusalem, where the apostles were, where Jesus was, where you saw gifts of healing being practiced in the book of Acts. So isn't it odd that James actually doesn't say, call the man that's gifted with healing to heal the sick one? Why doesn't he do that? Why does he not say, why does he say actually you're to pray for the one that's sick? It's interesting that he doesn't. Why doesn't Paul heal Epaphroditus in his letter to the to the Philippians? He doesn't. Especially since Paul had exercised that gift. Why does he not do that? Why does he recommend for Timothy to drink wine for his stomach rather than to call the healer? for the stomach issues that he had? Why did he not heal Trophimus, who he left behind in Miletus? It's interesting that if that gift was an ongoing gift for all time, why do we not see it anywhere, other than just in those distinct periods of time? Calvin makes this comment. He says, They make themselves ridiculous. Don't you just love Calvin? He says, Therefore, by pretending that they are endued with the gift of healing, the Lord doubtless is present with his people in all ages and cures their sicknesses as often as there is need, not less than formerly. And yet he does not exert those manifest powers nor dispense miracles by the hands of apostles because that gift was temporary and owing in some measure to the ingratitude of men immediately ceased. It's interesting how he says it was to the ingratitude of men that it ceased. But uh, Calvin saw that the gift of, of healing had ceased in his time. Now, it's interesting to note is that 500 years ago, Calvin was actually dealing with these same things that we are dealing with today. And he was able to see through it. But there's something else that's really important for Calvin's time. And this is just a a historical point of reference. One of the attacks of Rome upon the Reformation was it wasn't backed by miracles. And Rome is big in miracles, And so Calvin had to deal with this from the scriptures to say, actually, no, we're continuing the legacy of the word of God. as it has always been held and maintained. Um, And it's because we don't have miracles is no sign that it's not a work of God. Actually, who's ever truest to the word of God is what Calvin was arguing is a sign of the true church. Um, but the, uh, in, in Roman Catholicism, uh, there was a big emphasis on that of miracles. By, by the way, there are still in Rome today many charismatics. Rome me- meshes really well with the charismatic movement. Um, and so it's not just in Pentecostalism. One of the things that you see about modern-day faith healers is this, is that they say, if you have faith, you'll be healed. I just want to look at a couple of places to say, is that how it always is in Scripture? In John chapter 5, we read this. Um, Jesus comes to the man at the pool of Bethesda. And if you begin in verse 5, it says, one man who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. So it was according to the tradition at the time. If you stepped in the pool at the right time, then you would be healed. And this poor man is trusting in that and waiting for someone to put him in at the right time. Now, Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. Where's the man's faith? It's not present. He does not exhibit faith. In fact, I don't think he was regenerate, at least not at this point or later. Compare this healing with that of the blind man. You see a marked difference in how they respond to the leaders when questioned. This man's healed. And shows his ingratitude by ratting Jesus out. There's no faith presence in this man, but the Lord, according to his sovereign will, in fact, is able to heal him. You see, there's no faith present. Well, then in, in chapter 4, you just backed up uh, uh, um, just a chapter. Jesus he- heals the official's uh, child. The man asks that Jesus would heal his son, and Jesus says in verse 48. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Did the child have faith? No. Child's somewhere else. Maybe the father said, I'm going to go and, and go to Jesus. But the son, it's not the son's faith. It's the, It's this man's faith that actually is that means that Jesus heals this person. So, if we think about the gift of healing today, well, we don't see that faith was necessary in the man of, at the pool of Bethesda. With the centurion, it's not the one that's healed's faith, but it's actually the faith of the Father. And then in Matthew, in chapter 9, we read this of, of, of a healing in, in verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. for she said to herself, "If I only touched his garment, I will be made well." Jesus turned and seeing her, said, "Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well." It was faith was the means of that healing. Now the reason I point this out is because modern day um, Claimants of faith healing will say it's always God's will to heal, but you must have faith. Well, is it God's will to always heal? Well, no, it's, it's not. And does he always heal through faith of the person? No, that was not the example that we see in the New Testament. In, in Bethel and Reading. Which is not a church. Bethel and Reading is a cult. It's demonic, and there's no other words for it. Uh, When when Bill Johnson, the man that claims to be the pastor, his wife was sick with cancer. Tragically, she died. Just this, I think, last year. But it's God's will to always heal. He would say that and has said that and has made his ministry on that. Why did his wife die? Did she not have faith? Did he not have faith? Did he not have the gift of it? That's tragic. That's tragic to people that live under that. We we cannot hold hands with people like that. And we can't sing their songs. We can't say that they are faithful. That, that's, that's evil wickedness, to hold that type of sway over so many people. And believe me, Bethel is very influential. In fact, when you look at their music publishing that is sung In the majority of Christian churches all across this nation, all across the world, they have massive influence. We cannot hold hands with people like them. We actually need to, according to Scripture, say, that's a false teacher. But think about the damage that that does in claiming there's this gift of healing and that it's always God's will to heal. What does that do in the heart and soul of the person that's just simply desperate for something to take place in their life because they're sick and they hear one of these false teachers so when we when we when we think about this we have to think about it biblically we have to look at the examples of healing and we have to ask the question do we see that in scripture that what we see in scripture do we see that today the answer is no We don't see that today. We don't see that today. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you that we are healed ultimately in Christ. And that by his wounds, we are healed. And we look forward to the day where we have ultimate healing in glorified bodies. Father, you have given us warning of false teachers, of false prophets, and we know that they're all around us. We pray that by your Spirit, uh, working through your Word, we would have discernment, and we would filter things through your Word, which is inerrant and infallible. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.